Let us pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, that you have called us into relationship with you and that uh, you have um, changed our hearts that we might worship you and that we might serve you all the days of our lives. Holy Spirit, come and fill our hearts now that we might uh, have our ears uh, unstopped and our hearts open to the word that you would speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Right, so this is our last uh, thing on worship uh, next Sunday. I know all of you will be back on the 27th, um, and uh, we don't have traditionally Sunday school that Sunday, but we have a, a fellowship time uh, over coffee and things uh, there in Clingman Common. So we'll take a break, but we're back at it uh, January the 3rd, and Matt Schneider will be in here doing something uh, about New Year's, and then uh, we've got a special guest coming in the 10th and the 17th. And then the 24th, we have the annual meeting. And then the 31st, we have George Carey, the Archbishop of Canterbury, here. Uh, so um, basically, I'm quitting. Uh, <laughs> it is. And I mean, do you know, I mean, this, Lent falls really early this year. And so we have our annual meeting. We have George Carey. Then the next weekend, we have our diocesan convention. And then the following Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. So uh, it's February 7th. No, no. Ninth, tenth, something like I should know that. Uh, speaking of which, if you're really into sponsoring the Lenten lunches, there's a table out there. I, I neglected to mention it in the announcements, uh, but I fit it into the prayers. I hope the Lord, uh, Lord forgive me. Uh, but it is, it's a really, really wonderful ministry, and the sponsorships really help us uh, reach out. Well, speaking uh, of worship, we've been talking about it in the context of Acts, context of Acts chapter 14, where uh, Paul and Barnabas are in Lystra, and uh, Paul is preaching, and uh, the people in Lystra, because they'd never heard the gospel before, uh, heard this new message, and, uh, you know, they liked what they heard. And so they just assumed that Paul was Hermes, and that uh, Barnabas must be Zeus, that the gods have come down. And they were so excited that they pulled one of the priests from the, the high priest from the temple of Zeus there uh, and began uh, to uh, worship and make sacrifice uh, to, uh, to God uh, there. Um, should I worry when a clergyman is calling me on a Sunday morning? I'm looking at my phone right now. That's what's happening. Um, but they began to worship Paul and Barnabas. And, of course, they, they rent their garments. They tore their garments and said, no. Uh, do not uh, worship us, uh, but worship uh, the one uh, who has made you and has called himself into relationship uh, through Jesus Christ. And uh, this wonderful uh, little line that even after Paul preaches this little sermon, uh, Luke tells us that even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. To them. Now, uh, I'm uh, one of those uh, firstborns, Mark, Jen, and I were talking. Did you know that firstborns are, are uh, statistically much more likely to have poor posture than any other child in the birth order? Uh, because the weight of the world is on our shoulders. I mean, that's, that's true. And it's totally up to us to make things right. And, uh, and if we don't, uh, woe be unto us. But uh, yeah, there's something to be said about that, about being people pleasers. And I am a firstborn, and uh, I really um, uh, thrive off of achievement and, uh, and words of affirmation. Of course, I say, please, please don't, please don't tell me. <laughs> uh, and, and some of you are, are, are like that. So it's, um, but there's a line here. And, uh, but in some sense, this 
Um, uh, this uh, passage here in Acts 14 uh, shows, uh, well, one, praise God, Paul and Barnabas renting their garments and saying, no, you're worshiping the wrong person. Uh, but more than that, um, our propensity as human beings uh, to worship something other than God. Uh, now, this is much more um, clear cut because it's easy for us with our 21st century eyes to look back and say, oh, foolish people, they're sacrificing to Zeus and uh, Hermes. Uh, and yet, uh, in some ways, our worship of idols or things other than God, uh, much more subtle, uh, much more subtle. Um, and uh, and I, I've talked about some of those things that we deal with in our culture. Uh, one of the things that, I, that I'm struck by more and more is um, that our culture is concerned more about perception than reality. It's how you perceive things, how you process things, not actually what something uh, is. And so that's why anytime somebody disagrees with something, um, and they might rightfully disagree with it, they think that the way to do it is to stamp it out and to get rid of it. And so if it doesn't exist in front of your eyes, then it must not exist in the human heart. Well, of course, we know that the greatest idol factory that ever existed, as Calvin tells us, is the heart, right? And the thing about it is, is just when we think that we've got one idol stayed, when we come to the realization that maybe our kids might not play Division I sports uh, when they're about eight or nine, uh, we, we find that out, and it's devastating at first, uh, but, then, um, but then we think, well, that idol has been crushed, uh, but very quickly something else comes along uh, to pull into it. I mean, it's hard not to do it. I remember my parents would tell me things like, you know, this spelling quiz could determine where you go to college. <laughs> oh, I mean, that parents lied to me about all kinds of stuff. Uh, but, uh, but I remember looking back on that and thinking, you know, I, I kind of understand what they were doing, but at the same time, uh, good grief. Uh, and so it was very easy for me growing up like that, mom and dad, if you're listening, uh, they're not, uh, but uh, um, it was very easy for me to make uh, academics an idol, but we all know that whatever it is that we have a propensity to worship, and I'm not talking about falling down and burning incense and sacrificing, but in some sense there's, there's a different kind of sacrifice, <laughs> right, that you're actually willing to sacrifice something that is near and dear to you in order to get whatever it is that you want to get. And, um, and, and I find myself doing it in all kinds of little ways uh, in my own life. And that sometimes it is, uh, well, it's a miracle, uh, and it's a good miracle that God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, comes into our lives and pushes on the bruise uh, in our hearts where we realize that things are an idol. And more often than not, the things that we tend to worship as idols uh, are good things, are good things whether it's our kids, uh, whether it is doing well in your vocation, whatever it might be, uh, they're good things, but they so easily uh, become an idol. Uh, one of the most oft-misquoted Bible verses is um, uh, people say, well, money is the root of all evil. Well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that uh, the love of money uh, is the root of all evil. And many of us would probably say, well, you know, I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't have that problem. Uh, but there are people who have, uh, that use money to accomplish something else, whether it's prestige uh, or, or use it for a purpose in order to draw attention to themselves, where they're really not that hung up on money, but they're hung up on the thing that money can help them get. 
And uh, there's a pretty remarkable story uh, in the Old Testament uh, looking at Exodus 24. Now I'm backing all the way up to Exodus 24 because the Lord says to Moses, come up on the mountain. Come up on the mountain. So that's chapter 24. Now let's skip forward to chapter 31. Now in Bible time, that's seven chapters, right? That's a long uh, long time to be away. And so while Moses is up on the mountain with uh, the Lord, uh, what happens? Right, that's right. So after he had finished speaking, uh, God gave him uh, the two tablets and uh, the testimony on the stone and uh, written by the finger of God. That's 31. And then 32, uh, he comes down the mountain. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, he was gone for a really long time. Uh, 40 days, 40 nights thing. Uh, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron, the, the, the high priest, and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, and they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt. They have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. God has a very good memory. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I might consume them in order that I may make a great nation for you. But Moses implored the Lord and said, O oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? Basically he says, spare them. And the Lord says, okay, I won't bring disaster upon them. But this is where it gets kind of funny. Then Moses, after pleading for mercy, goes down from the mountain with the two tablets that were written, and uh, he uh, breaks them. And uh, when Joshua heard the noise as the people shouted, he said, there is a noise of war in the camp. But Moses said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Uh, and Moses said to Aaron, uh, Aaron totally cops out. And, uh, and then uh, there's this wonderful line that says, uh, uh, if you're on the Lord's side, rally to me. And the sons of Levi rally to him. And disaster is exacted upon the people of Israel. So I think it's kind of funny that Moses says to God, don't hurt them. And then Moses gets in like, I'm killing you all. <laughs> like, what is wrong with you? You threw a party. It's like basically the parents leave for vacation and come back, and there's been this huge party at the house, uh, which they think they're going to get away with, but they don't. But much more significant. But what I want us to see in this is uh, Moses is gone. Now, it, in some ways, 
Uh, actually, not in some ways, in a very real way. Moses served as a mediator between the people of Israel and God up on the mountain. So when God had begun to manifest himself to the people of Israel, uh, they were understandably a little bit afraid uh, about being in his presence. And so Moses went on their behalf, and they saw what happened. Moses would come down, or when he would be communing with the Lord, uh, his face would shine so radiantly with the, with the glory of the Lord that they would make him put a veil over his face because it was hard to look upon him. Now, after a while, that glory uh, would fade, um, but Moses was the go-between uh, between God and the people. He would go up, and as in this instance where God is talking to him uh, and giving him the Ten Commandments, Moses will go down and deliver the Ten Commandments, except that he busts them up at the bottom of the mountain uh, in anger toward the people. And so Moses coming to bring a word uh, from uh, the Lord. And so within all of us, we understand at a very deep level the need for a mediator, uh, in, in our lives at face value. Uh, I'm sure I've told the story, but I'll tell it again, of the Roman Catholic professor, and he would have his first-year seminarians, these young guys that were starting their training for ministry for the Roman Catholic priesthood, and he would start by telling the story. He said there was this anthropologist who had taken a team of students from America over to some unevangelized place, and there in the wilds they see this native uh, sacrificing a chicken uh, to the corn god. And, uh, and, and the anthropologist says to his students, see this primitive form of worship wherein this native is sacrificing to the corn god. Let us go and enlighten him uh, uh, that those practices are primitive. And then he asks his class, whose side are you on? The native with the chicken or the anthropologist? Well, Western people probably initially, intellectually, have a propensity to run toward the anthropologist. Uh, and yet what this professor would tell his students is, I'm with the chicken guy, uh, because at least the chicken guy understands the need for blood. He understands the need for a mediator. He understands that there has to be something that goes between himself and a holy God, where the anthropologist does it. Now, I mean, if you're a seminary, and you go and, and tell the guy, you don't need chickens anymore. Jesus Christ has done that on your behalf. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, he gets it, and the Israelites got it too. So when Aaron, they say, look, we need, we need something uh, to worship. Aaron says, take off your jewelry. He melts it down, and he makes for them a golden calf, which they worship. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. But listen to what Aaron says. Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Uh, there's a sense in which the Israelites think that they're worshiping who? God. Right? They, they, there's, not, there's an indication here that they didn't think like, this is somebody totally different, but this is somebody, this is the one who brought us out of the land of Egypt uh, to where we are, but here's an embodiment of the God of Israel, something that we can hold, something that is tangible, something that we can manage, something that we can have. And so uh, you, can, you don't need a mediator if it's just a statue, right? You don't need a mediator. You can go up and, and touch that. Uh, when it comes to the holy living God, uh, you need a mediator, right? When Moses said, I want to see your face, I want to see your glory, God said, you cannot because you will die. But what I'll do is I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and when I pass by, you can see my back. And, uh, and even then, that's, you know, Moses lit up like a Christmas tree. Uh, and so, um, 
They don't need a mediator if they're actually able to take an idol and bring it down. But here's the thing about idols, and we see this with the Israelites. They think that the thing that they think that the idol will bring them actually brings them the opposite of what their hearts desire. And not just that, they think that this idol is manageable, but it turns out they don't have a hold of it, that it has a hold of them. Right? That's why uh, we read that uh, those who worship idols become like them. They have ears but cannot hear. They have eyes but cannot see. They have mouths but cannot speak. Those who worship them become like them. And indeed, whatever it is that we worship, we become very much like them. And so, these people, a stiff-necked people, are really no different uh, than what we are. Now, when you fast forward to John chapter 1, a wonderful uh, prologue in John's Gospel, uh, John picks up on this idea of a need uh, for a mediator. Chapter 1, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So the mediator Moses, that you might have a right relationship through fulfilling the law of God, uh, although there's plenty of mercy and grace uh, in the Old Testament. It's not that the New Testament is about grace and the Old Testament is about the law. Not at all. There's actually uh, an infinite uh, amount of grace uh, in in the Old Testament. Uh, But what we have now is a perfect mediator, right? One who by him we can have access uh, to the Father. By him uh, we can have relationship uh, with God that although he is holy uh, and a perfect God, uh, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, we're actually able to be in relationship with him. And for a lot of people, that is offensive. It would have been offensive, it was offensive to the people in Jesus' day, this idea that you could call God Daddy. Right, that you could call him daddy, that you could speak to him uh, in the same way that you might speak to one of your parents and that he would speak to you in the same way that you might speak uh, to one of your children. Uh, that intimacy makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And so they actually would like to have something between them, right? You'd almost rather have uh, the golden calf uh, there. Now, we've been talking through these past few weeks, too, that the way that we worship uh, is not just about Sunday mornings, but it's in our, our entire lives. It's not just a Sunday thing, uh, but we worship constantly uh, throughout the day. Uh, someone once said, uh, if you want an idea of the thing, if you're wondering what it is that you worship, uh, take note of what the first thing you think of is when you wake up in the morning. And that gives you a, a general, now it, it might, you know, that there are pressing things in all of our lives that, uh, that you know, we have, uh, I've been wanting to, all of our girls are in one bedroom, uh, which uh, is kind of a bad idea, uh, but um, it's sort of Peter Pan-like, and they're all in there, and they love it, uh, and they have a very squeaky bedroom door, uh, and I went out and bought some WD-40 to fix it, and then I realized... I want that squeak. I want to be warned. Uh, that, and so for me, the first thing uh, that I normally hear in the morning is, and I see this little redhead looking at me saying, I'm about to crush you. Um, uh, and start your day in this way. So that's what I think of. Uh, but, uh, but then I, I tend to, by God's grace, get back uh, on track. Uh, but when we talk about worship, whether it be Sunday mornings or whether it be... Um, our, our lives, uh, God actually uh, is not indifferent uh, to the way 
that uh, we worship. And so looking uh, in the Old Testament, uh, where temple worship was a really, uh, really big deal and uh, was uh, the means by which uh, people had access uh, to God, you have some amazing uh, things written uh, about what it is uh, that God uh, wants from us in, uh, in our uh, worship. And so in Joel, uh, in the Minor Prophets, uh, we hear Joel say in chapter 2, uh, Rend your hearts and not your garments unto the Lord. Right? It's not about outward show of piety that you're not, uh, you may, remember when Larry Langford did the sackcloth and ashes thing? Right? It made the news recently because uh, uh, Mayor Bell and Councilman Landry uh, played Mike Tyson Punch-Out uh, in an ante room next to the city council chambers. Uh, but AL.com was doing a, a sort of a list of top ten most embarrassing moments in the life of the city of Birmingham. And um, they stopped at ten. Uh, but um, uh, one of them, one of them, and they have, you can watch it, you can watch the video uh, but I, re- I wasn't in Birmingham when it happened, but I remember reading the articles about it, and the thing that every article honed in on was here were all these people wearing sackcloth and ashes, which is nothing wrong with that, uh, but all the photographs were zoomed in on Mayor Lankford's Rolex. Um, and uh, so here's a guy who's you know, talking about humility and, uh, and saying all the right things and looking the right way, but... There's something not quite right uh, about it. And so what Joel is saying to us is uh, what God is really interested in uh, is, uh, is your heart. For Psalm 51, for you will, this is uh, David in the midst of uh, his, uh, right after uh, having uh, an affair with Bathsheba and the death of the child, uh, he says to God, for you will, deny, you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. A big theme in David's life, Psalm 40. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Uh, behold, then I said, Behold, I come, and the scroll of the book it is written for me. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is written in my heart. And so what God is really after is not an outward conformity of doing all the right things and showing up at all the right places. Uh, we can all put on sackcloth and ashes, uh, but we've all got a Rolex in our hearts. All right? And that's actually where God really cares about, where he really wants to go. I mentioned a week or two ago that you know, when we come into worship, uh, we think now it's time for me to get my act together and get focused. And surely we're there as the body of Christ to worship the Lord. But God is actually interested in the things that burden your heart because that's what he wants. And so I love this uh, little, little slide. Uh, if you can't see it, it says Aztec Temple with a beautiful moon up above. It says sacrifice. All we ask here is that you give us your heart. Uh, and so, um, uh, in, in a sense, um, what God wants from us is us. Uh, he wants us. He wants us wholly given over to him and worshiping him, for that is uh, his due. And when you've had your heart changed by the Lord, you begin to have that desire. In fact, if, if you feel right now like, gosh, I don't worship God like I ought to, uh, that's an indicator that the Holy Spirit of God is at work in your life. If you think, I got my sackcloth and ashes, I'm making it happen, 
Uh, I'm looking good. I, I do all the right things. I know where everything is in the prayer book. Um, but if you're the guy out there that's like, I need a Tibetan Sherpa to get through the prayer book. Uh, and I wish, that I, I wish that I could worship uh, in, in a way where I could um, really give God his due. But uh, I'm really struggling. But my heart does cry out to him in the same way that David's heart uh, cries out to him. That I'm not rending my garments, but I am uh, I'm rending my heart. Right? I want to give God uh, my heart and give myself wholly uh, over uh, to him. And so uh, you get a lot of heart language uh, in, in the Bible. And one of the wonderful things uh, that Thomas Cranmer did is one of his favorite words, heart. Heart. He loved that word. And so he put it a lot uh, in the liturgy because he understood, uh, one, the sinful condition of the human heart, uh, but also uh, God's desire to be in relationship with us and his mercy and his love uh, toward those who had uh, broken hearts. Uh, and so it's very funny that Cranmer, who wrote uh, the Book of Common Prayer originally, um, and invented, not invented, but took the best of what was going on in worship and wrote some along with other people um, in order to point our hearts toward God, uh, that a lot of people have actually used this very good thing in order, well, basically create an impediment to worshiping God. Well, what do I mean by this? Um, this time of year uh, is always difficult for me because here I am, a minister, getting upset with my parishioners. And, uh, and why is that? Well, the day after Halloween, what happens? 100.1 goes fully over to Christmas, right? So that's, that's what happens now. That is way too early for me. But there's sometimes I feel like the church, especially the, the Episcopal church, we can, be, we can be real jerks about Christmas because we'll say things like, I won't say Merry Christmas because it's not Christmas yet, right? You'll say Happy Advent. Well, if you do that, it, it's going to turn people off, right? If, because nobody else really knows the fact that Christmas officially doesn't start until the evening of uh, December the 24th. Uh, and so when someone says Merry Christmas to me before we actually get to Christmas, um, I say Merry Christmas back, right? Because that's, that's the thing to do. Now, what we do offer is to say, you know what? Chris, we don't start packing up the tree the day after Christmas. Uh, but in fact, we've got uh, 12 days uh, following that until we get to Epiphany. Uh, and so uh, we, you know, I mean, I don't know about you. I, we still try to give little gifts along the way. Uh, in order to, so the kids are totally into it because they're little capitalists. Uh, we actually prey on their sinfulness uh, in order to show them that Christmas uh, is a season and not just kind of the buildup, and then and then it just sort of fades away. And so, it's funny to me that if Cranmer came and and if people said, well, you know, it's too, you shouldn't, you shouldn't say Merry Christmas. You shouldn't um, wear Christmas clothing. You shouldn't go. I asked someone this morning. Um, they were giving me a hard time because I said Merry Christmas to somebody back, and they said, you know, you really shouldn't say that. And I asked, well, how many Christmas parties have you been to? And they looked at me and they said, well, none, because it's Advent. And I said, well, I can see why you probably didn't get invited there. <laughs> so um, to, to shift gears a little bit, um, you know, one of the things that, that, you know, when it comes to liturgical worship, that we can actually turn it into an idol and, uh, and that we can kind of get locked into it. So I want to talk about a couple things. Um, when Cranmer wrote uh, the prayer book, in 50, he wrote one in 1549, and then he wrote another in 1552, and he would have continued to revise, except uh, Mary burned him at the stake, 
Um, but uh, these words, which you don't have to read, they're it's pretty wordy. Uh, but you'll note this is the 1662 book, which is based on the 1552 book. It was there was one other one, but then this is the one that now is across the communion, the the prayer book. Um, a lot of churches throughout the Anglican Communion didn't do what we did. They didn't keep adding prayer books. They kept the 1662, but they would add supplemental books. Like in England, they have a book called Common Worship. Um, in Australia, they have something called an Australian prayer book, but it's not a substitute for the Book of Common Prayer, but a, a modern supplement uh, to it. So what would happen, and still happens if you go to the Church of England today, if you walk into a communion service, uh, they do... Uh, the Lord be with you, lift up your hearts, all that proper preface where we tell you kind of about what Jesus has done for us. And then, uh, therefore, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, uh, we worship and magnify thy name and we do holy, holy, holy. You know that. Now, interestingly enough, in the Church of England, after they do the, what's called the Sanctus, that holy, holy, holy thing, do you know what they do? They pray the prayer of humble access then which to us would seem weird and awkward. Uh, but Cranmer did that because, because he, it, he's looking at Scripture. He's looking at Isaiah 6, right, where, where Isaiah is in the presence uh, of God and uh, the holiness of God, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And what is the prophet's response? Woe be unto me, for I am a man of unclean lips, right? Well, that's Cranmer's response. We just sang the Sanctus, holy, holy, holy is the Lord our God. And so our response is, uh, we do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness. Woe be unto me, we're undone. Now, I don't know who did it in America, but somebody moved it. Well, after that, then, this is the prayer of consecration. So this is when they, they remember uh, that night when Jesus was handed over to suffering and death. Um, and then as soon as they finished with the cup, you say amen, and then you pray the Lord's Prayer, and then you have communion, right? Now, that's awfully short, isn't it? Because um, after communion, you have two options for post-communion prayers in the 1662. This is the one. Almighty and ever-living God. This is after you've received communion, you're back in your pew, you've got your purse ready. We most heartily, if, if you've not left already, you're hearing this on the way out. Uh, we most heartily thank you. Without us, about safe to feed us, who have duly received these holy mysteries with the spiritual food of the most precious body and blood of thy Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, and dost assure us thereby of thy favor and goodness toward... Well, you, you, um, you know that one, right? Right, you know that one. Well, here's the other one. O Lord and Heavenly Father, we, thy humble servants, entirely desire thy fatherly goodness, mercifully to accept this, our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. And here we offer and present unto thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls and bodies, to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice unto thee. Now, where do we do that? We do it in the midst of the consecration prayer. But for Cranmer, this was the prayer that you said after communion. And do you see how different it sounds when you're in the pew and you're praying it yourself? Right? It becomes, honestly, less about communion, but more about your life to God, right? God has actually given himself to you and in joyful obedience as a response uh, that, that you would accept ourselves, our hearts, uh, even though we're unworthy to offer him any sacrifice, 
Yet we beseech you to accept this, our bounden duty and service, not weighing our merits, but pardoning our offenses. Well, what is our bounden duty and service? It's not the communion prayer. It's not, the, not what, what the minister has done uh, with the bread and the wine. Uh, but in fact, it's you're offering yourself to the Lord to use uh, as he will. Right. So um, actually, we might start incorporating this uh, when George Carey comes, uh, because he's English, and uh, he's going to mess up the prayers otherwise. Uh, so why, why is our, the 79 prayer book different? Um, well, one, uh, it's a theological consideration. Um, it really wasn't at the time, but in the late, after the American Revolution, um, the Church of England was actually not very popular in America, if you can imagine. Anything that was Anglican, it's, I mean, Anglican it, it's, means English, right? I mean, Anglo-Saxons. And so that's why we became the Episcopal Church rather than the Anglican Church. We are Anglican, but for marketing purposes, we've marketed ourselves as the Episcopal Church. We might want to reconsider. But anyway, uh, so there, what the problem was is that there were no bishops in America, which actually, I'd love to have a bishop that is in London. Uh, that would be awesome. Uh, but uh, instead, he, I love our bishop. But anyway, it's just, you know, well, if your bishop is thousands of miles away, you can be really creative. And the American church actually was in, uh, before the revolution, through the revolution, was pretty creative in doing some great things. Uh, but after the revolution, a ton of them became Methodist. A ton of them became Methodist, who were all Anglicans uh, in the first instance. But anyway, so there were no bishops, so they went over to England <coughs> to get bishops consecrated. Well, in the Church of England, in order to become a bishop, you have to take an oath to the crown. Well, what in the world was 1776 all about? So nobody was willing to do that, and so the Church of England, that didn't really like us that much at that point, said, well, um, well, too bad, we're not going to do it. So they packed their stuff, and they went to Scotland. Now, you may know that uh, when the Queen of England is in England, she's an Anglican. But what happens when she crosses the border into Scotland? She becomes a Presbyterian. Right? Uh, so a member of the royal family is always present at the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, which is Presbyterian. And, uh, and even so, uh, there were some Anglicans uh, up in Scotland uh, who didn't want to be a part of the Church of Scotland, uh, and they were leftovers from the time of Archbishop Laud, who we talked about, and uh, sort of still resenting um, the glorious revolution under William and Mary. And they actually uh, had... The prayer that we used for our communion service was the prayer they used for their communion service, where they took those two prayers and they mashed them together. And so when they went up to Scotland, the Americans said, we, we need you to consecrate some bishops. And they said, we'll do it, but you have to take our communion prayer and use it. So it actually, how it came about, it was a political consideration. It was a way for us to secure bishops not a theological conviction. But what we found in our church is this little Latin phrase which we've talked about a little bit, lex orandi, lex credendi. And that is, uh, the way you worship helps shape what you believe. Right? How you worship shapes what you believe. And so very interesting, uh, there are two, two ideas of prayer book worship in the Anglican Communion. Uh, we have prayer books that are descended from the 1552 Book of Common Prayer, like the 1662 in England. And then we have prayer books that are descended from the 1549 Book of Common Prayer. And those places, so the 1549 line, Scotland, U.S., Canada, South Africa, and Japan. 1552, 
everybody else, right? And I, I don't know if you've noticed, but all of those people in the top are really struggling numerically. <laughs> and I don't think that that's a coincidence because of the theological thrust. Now, why did that happen? Not just the bishops. Church Mission Society, founded by William Wilberforce, Charles Simeon, uh, the Clapham sect, all those wonderful guys that helped end uh, the slave trade in, in, in the British Empire, founded the Church Mission Society in 1799. They went all over the world. The Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in Foreign Parts, a lot of tail on that kite, uh, but uh, 1701, they were uh, that and the Society for the Propagation of Christian Knowledge uh, were the two uh, mission societies. Uh, the SPG, they sent all of their, uh, all their people, well, let's do the CMS. CMS sent all their people to China, Australia, Nigeria, really almost all of Africa, Australia, uh, all over the world. SP, the SPG stuck with the United States, Canada, South Africa, Central Africa, and the Caribbean. And so you will find actually a real commonality uh, through those things. Now, whatever, we talked about this uh, as well. Uh, what happened in our church is uh, if you went to an Anglican church anywhere in the world, uh, really before the 20th century, you'd have a preaching service. You'd have a preaching service. Um, you might have communion once uh, a month, uh, maybe uh, less frequently. Uh, the minister would be dressed in a, a black gown. He'd put his surplus on uh, to do uh, communion. Uh, but with the rise of the Tractarian movement in the eight, late 1800s, all of a sudden, these medieval worship practices started creeping back into uh, the life of the church. And I believe many of them to be impediments. But there's a, an old humor magazine in England called Punch. Have you all ever heard of that magazine, Punch? They made it their mission to quash the Tractarian movement uh, through humor. And, um, and so actually I think that Punch was one of the reasons why it didn't take hold in England like it did in America. But they came out with all these wonderful little comics. You see the Church of England minister handing, handing all these Eucharistic vestments over to Mr. Punch. And, uh, and uh, Mother Church says to her son, Ah, now you are my dear old Protestant boy again. Uh, and so that, uh, that's one. Another one, um, Latimer and Cranmer uh, watching uh, the worship. Uh, some of them are kind of funny. Uh, the, the caption for this one, The Reverend Augustine Cope, our high churchman, has ordered a set of vestments. His pretty cousins waylay the parcel and dress themselves up in order to astonish Mr. Augustine. The Reverend Young Gentleman is, quote, grieved to find that they have no respect for solemn things. And I think that that's kind of funny because my kids would do the same exact thing. They'd break in it. Uh, this is just kind of funny, sweet thing in Christmas vestments, all decorated up. And, and this is Little Red Riding Hood. And then uh, Cranmer uh, sending, uh, sending away uh, the men. Um, and really, uh, Punch uh, making fun, uh, basically saying, if you're into the trappings, if you're into the form of it, but not into the substance, there's a disconnect. And that's idolatry. There's absolutely nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves, but if it becomes ultimately about that. I mean, we had an Ash Wednesday service. Well, we have an Ash Wednesday service every year. Uh, and at, uh, I'm sorry, Maundy Thursday. And we strip the chancel area, or take all the cushions, anything out, and basically make it very stark and bare. And um, there's a little lamp that hangs up there that's called the sanctuary lamp. And, uh, you know, it's got a little switch that we 
that we flip, it's always on, but we flip off for that service. And at the end of the service, with, you know, kind of powerful, very dramatic, we come out, and this person makes a beeline to me and says very angrily, the last thing you're supposed to do is to turn out the sanctuary lamp. You don't do anything, anything after that. <coughs> and I just thought, you have missed the point, right? You've missed the entire point. And so I, I love this little, little thing. Tradition, just because you've always done it that way doesn't mean it's not incredibly stupid. <laughs> and so, um, rend your hearts uh, and not your garments uh, unto the Lord. Um, you know, we've been talking uh, a lot uh, about worship and uh, there's not any sort of... Um, you know, we're not looking at really changing anything uh, here at the Advent, uh, but we have more and more people coming to the Advent from other backgrounds, uh, and, and I hope that we can give them and help them uh, have an appreciation for the liturgy and understanding that it's not about the form, but it's about the content and the message that it shares of what Jesus Christ uh, has done uh, for us and then being sent out into the world uh, to love him and to serve him and to worship him uh, all the days of our lives. Questions, comments, concerns? I was reminded that al Baghdadi, the head of ISIS, wears a Rolex. Does he? How many here wear a Rolex? I'll tell a very funny story. Um, someone uh, whose name will go unmentioned. Uh, I, I drive a, a Mercedes-Benz station wagon because uh, I can fit all the kids in and Lily's looking out the back and it's, it's not a luxury vehicle. I don't care what it is. It's a station wagon and, uh, and we, we use it pretty hard. And, um, but something was wrong with it. It's like a Lauren, oh, she's not here. Two, uh, it's like a 2007 or so, 2009, so it's not new. But there was something wrong with it, so I took it in the shop. And they do what they do at most dealerships. They, they gave me like the nicest Mercedes on the face of the earth. And so I come rolling in, and I got the windows down, and I got bass pumping. Just kidding, I didn't have any of that stuff. And, but I rolled up, and I parked in my spot and did my thing. And that night, we were having some people over the house. And, um, and, uh, this person comes up to me and says, hey, um, I really didn't want to say anything to you, uh, but the other day I came by the church and I noticed that some jerk with a nice Mercedes had parked in your spot. And then I came over to your house for dinner and realized you were that jerk. Uh, and I had just become dean, so it was a perfect storm. And this person said, you know, I think it just sends the ba a really bad message for you to buy a car like that. And of course, I just let him go. This was great. And I just let them know, like, and it just, it's just over the top, and it's, you know, you really ought to be convicted about being so gratuitous in your spending and poor stewardship. And then I said, well, it's, it's a loner. And they just started, you know, they fell over. Uh, they <laughs> cracked into a thousand pieces. Um, but so on the other hand, you know, it, you know it, on the one hand, you know, it, if you're in sackcloth and ashes and you're talking about that we all need to sacrifice and, and be in poverty, is there a problem with wearing a Rolex? Maybe. Uh, but the other thing is, because of Jesus, you ought to feel confident wearing a Rolex. Like, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's not, um, it, again, if you understand what's behind it, um, that makes all the difference in the world. Um, nothing? I said some kind of controversial things today. Yeah, coffee.
this really isn't so much a question, and I, I regret very much that I missed the first two sessions. But I recall reading the history of the development of this country in the first two books that appeared in our part of this world for the Book of Common Prayer and the King James versions of the Bible. That the Eucharist was celebrated virtually the moment the English settlers stepped ashore. And we've used that book, and it's been a common prayer. Another thought that came to mind, and I read this recently, and I can't recall where, the French have, have a law that governs their language. The yes. English do not, because we have the Book of Common Prayer, the King James Version of the Bible, which set forth the standard for the English language. Yes. And we don't have the need for a constitutional do you all know that? There's actually a, an arm of the French government who is in charge of language, and they even mandate how much foreign music can be played on radio stations versus French. And um, when emails started coming out, uh, people were just using e the, the e hyphen mail, and this arm, we've got to come up with our own word, and so they did. Uh, and so, uh, post electronique, that's very clever, isn't it? Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, but, but the thing about it is, is that they're they're afraid, and they what it is, it's a reaction. They're afraid that they're going to lose uh, lose something. Um, but but with English, um, yeah, I mean, the English have always had a feeling of you know you ought to be able to understand and hear what God has done for you in Jesus in a language you can understand, right? There hasn't been an imposition of English in the Anglican Communion as of late, anyway. All right, go in peace to love and serve the Lord.